0: Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka here with Professor Akil Amar. Hello, Akil. Hey, Andy. How you doing? Doing very well. Um, for once, I'm less busy than you uh, because the semester has started. So you're <laughs> you're, you're a crazy man again. But uh, anyway, so you're, so we're filming this episode as we uh, record it from your office uh, at, at Yale. And uh, there's a lot of boxes behind you. What's what's up with that?
1: Ah, so every so often without a lot of hoopla and advance notice, maybe three times a year, Amazon just all of a sudden indicates that for the next several days at least, they don't tell you how long, you can get three books for the price of two. And Whenever that happens, I stock up on books. And so I got a whole bunch of my own books. So I can give to Uh, students, uh, financial aid students, high schoolers applying to Yale College, alums at various reunion events and the like. Thank you, Yale, for helping to uh, finance this. But since I am, sometimes sometimes I use my own money, sometimes I use Yale money. I want to get the best possible deal. And when Amazon offers three for the price of two, that's a great deal.
0: Now, audience, this is not something that we schemed in order to put a promo out there for buying the words that made us, but you should go out there and get the words that made us. (laughs) Well, you still can. Thank you, Andy. (laughs) No problem. Um, So, in the news this week, a couple of anniversaries. Um, Of course, it's the 50th anniversary of the Roe versus Wade decision.
1: Indeed, and it's just a reminder that constitutional law is not defined entirely by what the Supreme Court says. And the Supreme Court has reversed itself in big ways over the course of history. Plessy versus Ferguson being basically reversed by the Brown v. Board revolution. Dred Scott being reversed in part by the, the people themselves in the constitutional amendment, a case called Pollock, which invalidated a federal income tax being uh, overturned by the people themselves. Uh, the Lochner era... Cases overturned by the New Deal era cases, and and now to that list um, we add Roe v. Wade, and this was a, a very very big a sea change, really, an earthquake in American constitutional law, uh, a landmark case that had generated lots of offspring, um, progeny. We call it um, in in law school um, cases building on Roe versus Wade and descending from Roe versus Wade, all swept aside by the dobs, really dramatic. And, and that's why we had, what, about nine episodes on that, Andy, yes. o- over the last year?
0: Yeah, Yes, yes, we did. Um, and also this week was the 50th anniversary of the death of President Lyndon Johnson, subject um, of, of a multi-volume biography that we've referred to from time to time from one of my uh, literary heroes, bi- bi- biography heroes, uh, Robert Caro.
1: You are a huge Cairo fan, and actually, I think maybe even Andy on on the website on your bookshelf there there is I think one of Cairo's books. Now you've encouraged me to really think about Cairo because I'm trying to write a multi-volume project. He has a multi-volume biography of Johnson that's still in progress, and I have a multi-volume in effect biography of the american constitutional experience still in progress i'm i did the words that made us and now i'm in the middle of the words that made us equal and and in fact andy you know that i've just done the preface and i've done the preface uh, very much thanks to your guidance about how Cairo uh, starts uh, a, some, one of his books and just you know what a preface should be how it should draw a reader into the book so that's that's one thing you're a huge Cairo fan and you're helping me write books that one hopes in the Cairo tradition are of interest to my fellow citizens and tell a big story. But let's also talk, not, not let that obscure the real point, which is not Cairo, but LBJ himself, an epic president, huge accomplishments. And now that we have the passage of time, I want to say two or three things about LBJ, um, um, who was my president growing up, you know, as, as a youngster. One, That among his extraordinary accomplishments was actually opening up America to people from around the world. The Immigration Reform Act of 1965 is huge. It's every, it's 1965, every bit as big as the Voting Rights Act, which is huge, and also the Medicaid, Medicare, Medicaid Act of 65, which is also huge. Three epic laws in, in a single year. And but for the Immigration Reform Act, lots of people in my family wouldn't be in the United States. So, wow. Changes the face of the nation. The Voting Rights Act. When I'm growing up, Andy, you know, as, as a youngster, I'm a person of color. And we're in, in the places in America where most blacks live, the former Confederacy. A lot of those places, most blacks are not being allowed to vote in my lifetime. And LBJ changes all that. Wow epic, And he does so giving the credit to Jack Kennedy, which the late Jack Kennedy, really interesting. That's how you get things done sometimes is give other people the credit. Kennedy, m- you know, may have believed this stuff, but he didn't get it done in his lifetime. And I think wouldn't have actually perhaps, but Lyndon Johnson was able to, to get it done. And Andy, you know, in the new book, I'm going to talk a lot about how reconstruction Republicans get a lot done using Lincoln's death. Lincoln's death is an, an earlier version of Kennedy's death leading to um, LBJ's second reconstruction, which is extraordinary. Civil Rights Act of 64, Voting Rights Act of 65, Fair Housing Act of 68. Um, and I'm thinking now that with the benefit of 50 years, all the more extraordinary because. You might think, well, he had the winds of change at his back in you know, the 1960s, but this stuff is controversial even today because the Supreme Court invalidated huge parts of this in in Shelby County and in some other cases. So even today, massive pushback against this revolution, you know, and without which you wouldn't have had Barack Obama, you see, but it's still controversial. So what LBJ did was a towering achievement. And another thing I think I just want to say about LBJ is, of course, people talk about Vietnam, but almost all presidents have tried sometimes to vindicate American ideals abroad not and use military force and not always successfully. So Vietnam is now with the benefit of hindsight of a piece with lots of other foreign policy adventures, not all of which have, have ended well. We could talk about Korea before Vietnam, but we could talk about Iraq and Afghanistan and uh, Kosovo. And so as time passes historians often have a different take a different perspective on the past the final thing i want to say is for especially for our podcast audience of course our podcast audience knows of my very great regard for philip Bobbitt, sir philip Bobbitt, who's been our guest in a previous episode philip as our audience i think knows maybe not was lyndon johnson's nephew johnson had no sons of his own Two daughters. Philip was the closest thing Lyndon Johnson had to a son. Philip is a genius and a towering legal figure and a dear friend and co author. And I've been thinking about him this weekend as I think about his towering kinsman, the great Lyndon Johnson.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, I I agree with you that, that Lyndon Johnson was very consequential. I mean, we tend to think of him nowadays. For two things, one for Vietnam and two for being a you know a, a sort of a strong arm president was able to get a lot through Congress, dominated Congress when he was in congress and um uh, as president as well. but I think that uh you know you said well the some people say that he had the wind at his back, but really his his presidency is um is a dividing line in many ways before Lyndon Johnson people did not really think of the that it was the government's responsibility to make sure that that people didn't live in poverty. Yes. The closest we came to that was social security which was a, enormously controversial, you know, um at at the time. Now, uh, perhaps it's controversial in terms of how it's uh, funding, you know, is to be continued, um but it's it's not controversial as a, you know, in the in the notion that the, there should be income there for for seniors um and there's um so so this is a huge and medicare
1: and medicaid of course right
0: exactly well that's that's related especially medicare is related to the idea of it's sort of social security and preventing poverty together because you have you know elderly people that became poor simply because they had no medical care so Mm -hmm. these are so if you think of america without you know some form of health care for the elderly and with no essentially no safety net um, for the poor. That was America before Lyndon Johnson. So that's a- sa- the
1: safety net really is um, a, the new deal, especially social security and then Medicare, Medicaid, and now Obamacare. That's the big three. And since I mentioned Obama a couple of times, you would never have President Barack Obama without the voting rights revolution and the immigration revolution of Lyndon Johnson. And just in terms of the world that we live in, the world that we live in was precipitated by a realignment caused by these great Lyndon Johnson achievements. In a nutshell, he passed, got laws passed so that black people could vote in the South. And they joined his party, the Democratic Party, which was the party, you see, of of Jefferson Davis, you know, and, and Dixiecrats and segregationists. But now blacks are joining and the Republican Party at the time was the party of Abraham Lincoln. And Daddy King, uh, Martin Luther King Sr., was going to actually vote for Richard Nixon in 1960 and, until a certain set of events transpired So, lots of Republican, uh, black Republicans in the South. And, uh, uh you know, lots of Tim Scott types and Clarence Thomas types, not so many blacks, Black Republicans in the South today, because Blacks get to vote. They give Lyndon Johnson the credit. They join his party. And when they join his party in the South, conservative Democrats say, oh, we don't want to be in the same party with those folks. They leave the party, these Dixie This Dixie Crestes had begun in 1948 with the Democratic National Convention, but a huge exodus of conservative Southerners, leaving the democratic party becoming republicans and once they become republicans they they're the, they become the center of gravity of the republican party people like they'll later become um Newt Gingrich and and Trent Lott and and others and they're going to push out of the republican party the moderate northerners um the so-called Rockefeller republicans who are going to become democrats this is a massive realignment that's going to be not just senators like Lincoln Chaffee, as in Abraham Lincoln, a Rhode Island Republican becoming a, a Democrat, or Jim Jeffords, Arlen Specter, not just folks like that, but on the court, moderate Northern Republicans becoming, in effect, Democrat affiliates. That's Harry Blackman, since we were talking about Roe versus Wade, who is from Minnesota. That's John Paul Stevens from Northern Illinois, from, from Chicago. That's David Souter you see, from uh, New Hampshire. So now we have, because of Lyndon Johnson, and we can see it with blinding clarity 50 years later, a profound realignment where today's Republican Party is the party of the former Confederacy, you see. Lincoln's party, the Grand Ole Party, is the party of the former Confederacy of Southern white conservatives, many of whom have a sense of uh, uh, aggrievement, uh, and the Yankee Party, Uh, The Northern Party, which has most uh, racial minorities, is the former party of Jefferson Davis, you see. Wow, what an interesting realignment, all precipitated by Lyndon Johnson, who knew what he was doing. He actually knew that the dominant party in America, which was the Democratic Party, Franklin Roosevelt's party, was going to be split by what he was going to do, what he tried to do, but he knew it was the right thing to do abraham lincoln like and he did it so god bless you president johnson and thank you very much for everything that you did for my family and people like me allowing us to be equal americans i i I salute you and and philip i'm thinking of you and your family
0: okay so that might not sound constitutional, but actually, you know, it is a little bit, you see, with voting rights. And uh, yes, Lyndon Johnson. Constitutional law is
1: history, political science, and law all, all together. And I try to give you all three, and I gave you a little bit of, of poli-sci and a little bit of history. Yes.
0: Yes. Okay. So the other thing that happened this week was there was an announcement about the uh, investigation uh, into the leak. We were speaking of the anniversary of Roe versus Wade, but of course, in the run up to the decision in the Dobbs case, there was the leak of the draft opinion, as you know, and the, so now we've had um, some form of a report uh, regarding the, the investigation into the leak, and one of the things that came out from this was that uh, numerous people had sworn affidavits or were questioned under oath, um, and so that was interesting. Um, it was also interesting that the justices themselves were questioned. And finally, it was interesting that, that those, two, uh, those two groups didn't intersect because the, the justices were not questioned under under oath. So what's your reaction to this as a constitutional scholar?
1: That there was a lot of blowback, and predictably so, because all the clerks were asked to swear under oath that they hadn't leaked the justices were um, interviewed, but they weren't asked to do the same thing. And from a certain point of view, why not? They're all employees, um, in, in effect, maybe not of the court in a certain sense, but of the country, of the taxpayers. They all work for us. And my own sense is, if I had been asked, I, I of course, wasn't, the justices themselves should have wanted to actually swear things under oath and wanted their spouses to do the same thing so that they would be treated similar to others and and wouldn't be subject of object of suspicion and conspiracy and just look like they're utterly out of step, out of tune in double standard land. And you know that I have criticized the court for its tone deafness in, in some of this. The phrase I've used probably three or four times in the previous episodes, is the great and powerful Oz has spoken. And the court can, the justices can, I think, be a little too stuffed with themselves. I have argued that actually they need to be open to overturn their precedents. The precedents are egregiously wrong. And for similar reasons, they need to be open to investigations into their own possible misconduct if everyone else is going to be asked under uh, oath they should be asked under oath it, it seems to many commentators out there so the first report didn't even mention whether the justices had been interviewed there was a, a lot of uh, uh, commentary in the Washpo, in the new york times from people like joan biskupik from people like ruth marcus both of whom we have invited to come on this podcast and we hope they they will soon uh, from jody Cantor in the new york times aaron tang a Yale law school graduate a law professor writes a piece in the new york times and that's just the tip of the iceberg So the the first report didn't even mention whether the justices had been interviewed. The second one said, oh, yeah, they were interviewed, but not by the same rules of engagement. And, of course, people said, gee, this is also just a reminder that there are not ethics rules that bind the Supreme Court members, justices, as there are ethics rules binding other judicial officers. So... We're going to hear more about this, Andy. And of course, they didn't find out who did it, who done it. From a certain point of view, I think it was Ruth Marcus who said, this is like a bad Agatha Christie who done it. There's a dead body in some cabin. The detective brings, you know, all the possible suspects uh, together and, and talks to each of them, except nine people. And the investigator doesn't uh, lay the, uh, you know, identify a culprit among any of the others. So of course, people are going to say, well, then who's left? Right. <laughs> it's, 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 and they're the only one. Who weren't actually made to swear under oath, and, and their spouses, of course, as well. Um, now, is it so, a
0: is it a crime? They were investigated by the marshal, so we know that, like, if you if you're questioned by the FBI, for example, it's a crime to lie to the FBI, right?
1: The False uh, Claims Act, False Statements Act, one thousand and one. Yes, right. is it a crime to lie to the marshal? I would think so, but I have to. I would have to double check, but I I think probably so. Yeah. Uh, so then, I, what's I the, the to, point of putting them under? under
0: what's the point of putting them under oath then i mean you know if if it's going to be a crime if you lie and it's not a you know then what, what what difference, so does it really make a difference that they weren't under oath? Other than it, it looks stinky for the reasons you said.
1: Oh, double jeopardy. Now you got them on perjury as well as false statements, okay? See, Andy, now this takes us back to our earlier episode mm-hmm. when we talked about, you know, when you rob six people around a table, is that, you know, one crime or six? It all depends on how the legislature has defined the crime, but if the legislature says six victims, six crimes, here the legislature can say, oh, there's one crime. It's uh, saying something untrue under oath. There's another crime but giving a false statement to a federal official. Oh, they pile up real fast. Some of these crimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I mean,
0: I I don't understand why they did, why they didn't put put them under oath. It doesn't make make a lot of
1: sense. I would have thought there would be at least one justice who says, I want to be mm-hmm. put under. I want to be treated the same way as my law clerks. I, I, in fact, not just want, I demand it because I'd like to clear myself in the most compelling way imaginable and that involves actually my saying something under penalty of perjury or pain of punishment. Yes, I. that's what I want. And and I'd like my spouse to do the same thing because that's going to be the best way to clear my name and legitimate and clear the air and and legitimate my
0: conduct i could see why they wouldn't do it though if that were the case because they got to work with these other justices for the rest of their lives or nearly so since we don't have term limits yet or or, you know so-called term term limits but um you know so if they say oh i want to take the oath then everyone else is going to have to take the oath too so they will have decided for them so well but
1: presumably but presumably they would say, I have no doubt whatsoever that this was any of my colleagues. And so this shouldn't be, it's not a problem for me. It shouldn't be a problem for anyone else. Let's all do it.
0: Right. But if they, it appears that they may not have wanted to, since they in fact
1: didn't. Have, but, what, but again, so but the conspiracy theory. say, what does that suggest? Yes. That maybe I know that I'm innocent, but I actually, there's a little part of me that wonders about, you know, the person, you know, <laughs> Who sits next to me on the court. Yes. Oh, yes. that's, that's awkward.
0: Yes, the plot thickens. Okay. So more to come, I suspect, on this, even though they're trying to. Yes. Mm-hmm.
1: And if this leak was a possible federal offense, and it might have been. Again, you have to look carefully at all the statutes. The FBI could have been brought in, but apparently wasn't. It's awkward for the court-martial attorney Curley to have to basically investigate vigorously her own bosses. That's awkward. So maybe you bring in someone from the outside.
0: I think she needs a new name other than court martial. Sounds a little bit too much, (laughs) (laughs) a little too military there. Okay, Um, so last week, um, we talked quite a lot about the goings-on, the the horrendous goings-on in in Idaho, and some of the interesting Fourth Amendment uh, implications of it. And of course, we didn't finish, so we're going to get back to that. Um, We're also going to talk about, we're going to go from the Fourth Amendment to the Sixth Amendment, which is a criminal procedure amendment that we haven't spent as much time on in the past in the podcast. So getting into some new areas there. Um, and then after we do that, we're going to uh, do something we've been promising for a long time, which is take some of your questions. Um, so, okay, so back to, back to Idaho. Now, we talked a little bit about the use of, of DNA. And you've advocated for, for a data, DNA database and you know we we discussed that in this case um the dna so far has been implicated in you know on the uh the knife sheath that was left behind and as i said last time it didn't establish the uh the dna match that they made was between the the garbage and the knife sheath and it didn't match but it proved some a parental relationship and correct yeah. So, and you brought up how this um, means that DNA is implicated in questions of paternity. Um, so it has all sorts yes. of of tricky things. So, in on the one hand, it seems like the current structure that we have, where there is no DNA database, uh, might make some people rest easier, right? Because they say, "Oh, I'm glad that the government doesn't, you know, have my DNA, even though I'm not have no intention of committing a crime, whatever." I just feel better that the government doesn't have my DNA. But in in your writings, you've pointed out how that has a sort of a perverse effect because it leads to an overall structure, which may in some ways be even less protective of your rights. Could you elaborate on that?
1: Sure. So in my world and the rest, in, in my proposal, and the rest of the world is moving toward this. and and I, I And I do see the concerns. But we're moving toward a world in which in other countries – uh, lots and lots of folks um, eventually everyone is going to be in the database but in america not everyone is in the database and you say okay i'm not in the database i've never been arrested i can arrest easy well point one someone who might be related to you might be in the database and now the government may have some information in effect about you because their dna actually can be linked to your dna in 23andme ways. so and that's not true of fingerprints you see so that's one concern more generally, yes, maybe I'm not in the database, but if the government really wants me to be in the database, I can be in the database without really my consent because it just follows me around forever until I carelessly, perfectly sensibly throw a coffee cup into a trash receptacle. But they're surveilling me, you know, maybe because of my race or politics or religion. And they just, and they say, Oh, you've abandoned it. So they fish it out of the trash, and now they've got my DNA uh, because my saliva's on the coffee cup, okay? And they don't need probable cause or anything else to surveil me forever. So if they want me on the database, there's no real Fourth Amendment safeguards against getting me in the database, point one, and now my family, too, because once they test that, they know some things not just about me, but about family members. So a Mars world is one in which Once the government has your DNA, that shouldn't end, uh, has a DNA sample, the story. Even if you, uh, you know, abandon something, a coffee cup, you threw something out in the trash. In a Mars world, queries, police queries of the database, trying to find out, use the sample to generate information about a suspect or the suspect's relatives, that should be a Fourth Amendment event. Right now... Following me around isn't a Fourth Amendment event. Fishing out the coffee cup isn't a Fourth Amendment event. And querying the database about me and my relatives isn't a Fourth Amendment event. In the Mars world, ooh, this, everyone has a sample in the database, but every time government wants to use it, that's a Fourth Amendment search or seizure of a certain sort, an episode, and I would say a judge or some other official whom we could create by law needs to sign off on that. Maybe you don't need a warrant for it, but you need to show that it's reasonable, and the more intrusive the the DNA inquiry is, the more it can implicate all sorts of other people, that more cautiously you're going to need to safeguard that database, and and it shouldn't be, and that those decisions should be made not just by cops, but by judges or magistrates or some other special privacy officials. So that's a totally different way of thinking about DNA than the the current model.
0: Now you don't like the exclusionary rule, so you don't like the idea that if they were to get some information, some evidence, uh, by this means, like let's say that uh, you're in the database and. You know, they, they have to get, you know, a judge's permission to, to access it, but they don't get the permission. And they go ahead and they use it anyway.
1: And so in now MMR's you're not world- going to let them exclude it. Correct. And in part under inevitable discovery, because is going to say if they had really kept following you, they would have found a coffee cup at some point and been able to to do this thing. In any event, let me say one other thing about DNA, if everyone in the DNA database. Our audience heard a lot about the feminist in me. A lot of these are crimes done by men against largely women. We don't have proof positive yet in the court of law that the person who killed these four folks in Idaho, I think three of whom are women, is a man. But, oh... I think it was a man and women were the victims. Let's take rape, which is a horrible crime. Stranger rape, not date rape. Stranger rape. In a Mars world, we'd have very little stranger rape, at least without condom use, because if you leave your semen, we're going to be able to, you know, do a swab immediately. Everyone's in the database. We're going to find you immediately. And knowing that, you refrain from rape if you're able to conform your conduct to the law or you wear a condom, which is or you know, it's still horrible that you rape someone, but it's, it's better to do it for STDs and pregnancy and other things with a condom than without. And if you're a serial rapist, you see, your first will be your last. But right now, there are all sorts of people that are going free because we can't make a cold hit uh, from the semen to a particular individual. And by the way... Innocent people are also going to be benefited in a Mars world, because right now, let's imagine that a person is on death row for a murder, and he he says, I'm innocent. And there's some DNA from the crime scene, and they finally, finally, finally test it, and it's negative. Well, the prosecutor is saying, that doesn't prove anything, because unless we know, uh, we have a cold hit, we know who it's from, maybe you had an accomplice. You know, maybe it came from someone unrelated. But if we can make a cold hit, if everyone's in the database and we find that, oh, that cold hit is from someone who absolutely fits the profile and has done all sorts of other crimes of a similar sort, and you never met that person at all, wow, you can walk free. You can be exonerated. Sometimes in order to exonerate the innocent person, wrongly charged, wrongly convicted, is actually identifying conclusively the guilty person. We're only going to be able to do that with a cold hit. And a cold hit is going to be much easier if everyone's in the database. So in a Mars world, and you're an informational scientist, you one of your um, you know in undergrad you study comp science and all the rest. If I want to uh, reduce both type one and type two errors, this is statistics talk. False. convictions and false acquittals if i want to reduce them both simultaneously i can reduce one by shifting the burden of proof one way or the other i can have you know more of of one kind of error and less of another and then i have to balance how bad is it to have one innocent person wrongly convicted versus lots of guilty people go free but if i want to reduce both of those false incorrect acquittals and incorrect convictions Information scientists tell me that the only way to do both of those is to bring more information into a system. Amar tries to do that with a DNA database that brings more reliable information to a system and getting rid of the exclusionary rule, which brings more information into a system.
0: Yeah, I mean, more truth means more means less false positives and less false negatives. Yeah. But, more, more reliable
1: information. Right. And right, right now, because, look, DNA is imperfect. Everything is imperfect. It can be planted. You know, um, uh, Scott Turow um, writes a whole novel about stuff, uh, presumed innocent, all sorts of stuff. But given that DNA is, in my view, less imperfect, better than eyewitness testimony, which can be very shaky. And and actually, oh, Andy's eyes light up whenever I say I. Okay, and we're going to talk about eyewitnesses very soon or other kinds of evidence that's that's imperfect. In a Mars world, in Sherlock Holmes's world, we are able to use science in Sherlock Holmes, Arthur Conan Doyle, who was a doctor, it's science fiction and now it's science. Ah. Using cigar ash, using, you know, these new forensic techniques, you know, fingerprints or today it's it's CSI and all the rest, we can reconstruct and DNA much more reliably what really did happen. Simultaneously help innocent people wrongly convicted as well as convict the guilty and protect victims of crime, especially of serial crimes of various sorts, serial murders, serial rapes and the like. And many of those victims are, uh, they're disproportionately
0: women. You know, the, the, of course, this isn't the only side to the question because there's also the question of abuse of the information. using yes. Using the information for... Purposes that really have nothing to do Nefarious. with law enforcement. And, 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 and talk- right now,
1: if, if the government ha- finds a cup, let's say it's a prominent black preacher who's critical of the government. There was a great profile of the Reverend Barber the other day. I've met him. I think he's a great man. He's in the MLK tradition, but, but he criticizes the government. So they surveil him and surveil him and surveil him and they get, and he throws away a coffee cup. And now they've got some interesting information, not just about him, but his family, you see. And we have to protect against that today, and we're not protecting against that today.
0: You know, last time I think we mentioned the uh, the nefarious activities of uh, Madison Square Garden with their facial recognition uh, technology and excluding a, uh, a Girl Scout, the mother of a Girl Scout from attending a Rockettes uh, concert with uh, a performance with – With her Girl Scout troop uh, through facial art because the person's law firm had uh, gone afoul of a powerful private individual um, in Madison Square Garden. So, in an update on that uh, today, I saw that the New York City Council is considering various laws to prevent the use of such technology for this sort of purpose by private individuals or private corporations. But I think it, you know, this does get into something about. the the flip side of your proposals which is that you need you still need to set up the incentives properly for government in other words it's fine to to say okay we're not going to convict as many uh, innocent people and we're not going to acquit as many guilty people this is great but we also need the incentive for government to not abuse the information to prevent protest or to pro- or to make people vote a certain way or you know to achieve illegitimate ends and that's why I think your, your proposals about uh, eliminating sovereign immunity uh, are very important. Remedies for innocent people,
1: yes. Mm-hmm.
0: So that's something to think. I mean, I think, you know, our audience that's probably could, popping into their heads, well, what if they start doing this? What if they start doing that? And it's important. And, to and if out. the
1: exclusionary rule is the only game in town, then you're out of luck if you're innocent. Right. And they're targeting you or your family in all sorts of ways, Yes.
0: Okay. And I think related to this, uh there was another case while we're talking serial killers here, um in Massachusetts, um where this guy chops up a bunch of people, um and he gets caught because of his uh in part because of his Google searches. So, um what's this now this is of course in the home of uh John Adams, Quincy, Massachusetts. 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 Quincy, Massachusetts. Yes. Um, and, uh, so they, they catch this guy, or at least the, he's accused, a a man named Walsh is accused of uh, murder, murdering his wife. Um, and what they said was Mr. Walsh conducted a whole bunch of, of Google searches. At least they think he did his, his phone did and his iPad did. So I his,
1: and I think maybe his minor child. I think uh, at 4 a.m. is my the, the iPad of the minor child right. um, has all sorts of interesting Google searches. Andy, do you actually have a list of what some of the the, the, the queries were?
0: Yeah. So yeah, um, these are com- it's like
1: at 4 a.m. on New yes. Year's Day.
0: Yeah. So I mean, these are common searches that most of us will do. Like you know, uh, how long before a body starts to smell? Um, how do you stop a body from decomposing? And and the David Letterman, you know, 10 ways to com- dispose of a dead body if you really need to. Um, how Can you throw away body parts? How long does DNA last? Is it better to throw... Now, they want, he also wanted advice. To, is it better to throw crime scene clothes away or to wash them? <laughs>
1: It, stuff about what does formaldehyde do, how long yeah, I mean, does DNA last, luminol, all yeah. sorts of stuff. And earlier, I think there was a question about which is the best date for a man to divorce a, a woman or something. So now, here's the, the two points. One, a criminal defense lawyer you know, might say, oh, well... There's a oh a lot of evidence here that he disposed of a dead body and he spent four hundred dollars at Home Depot using cash apparently to get mops and tarps and implements of destruction I think a hatchet and other things okay so you can say this is all really suspicious dollars to donuts here's one thing a criminal defense lawyer might say oh she died accidentally you know maybe even you know without any foul play at all but he was afraid he was going to be blamed so all he did was actually dispose of the corpse i promise you that is one possible line of defense that a criminal defense attorney might put forth and we're going to talk about what criminal defense attorneys can and can't do in just a minute about what the ethical rules are so that's one thing but the fourth amendment issue is okay were there any fourth amendment constraints on the government's getting that information it They didn't get it from him. Maybe they got it from Google. Now, if Google voluntarily handed it over, Google's not the government, you see. So maybe there are no Fourth Amendment rules at all. The Fourth Amendment is about rules about the government. But what happens if Google didn't voluntarily give it over? It was subpoenaed. Well, current doctrine says, oh, sometimes, oh, subpoenas, those aren't Fourth Amendment searches. And I'm thinking, actually, that is a Fourth Amendment search. Maybe it doesn't require probable cause because maybe actually you're subpoenaed to acquire probable cause for a warrant a subpoena can be for information subpoena dukens ticum um give us you know all the the documents that you might happen to have any classified documents you might happen to have you know in your residence or something mr biden okay it can be for papers it can be for things can also be a a person i can be subpoenaed to show up if i'm subpoenaed to show show up in the grand jury room, you know, on Tuesday at 9 a.m., gee, that looks like a seizure to me. They're telling me that, you know, I have to have my carcass in a certain place at a certain time. That looks a lot like a seizure to me. Doctrine doesn't call it that because doctrine doesn't want to admit that if it were a search or seizure, doctrine have to say either it requires a warrant or probable cause or here's another exception to the warrant requirement that we've made up and the probable cause requirement. We've made up... And yet another exception is, oh, Google's privacy isn't really implicated here. So even if they're not handing it over voluntarily, even if we're subpoenaing it, you know, why can, how can you complain? Because we're, we're getting the information from somewhere else, someone else, a, a third party. Sometimes the court has gone so far as to say, Oh, well, privacy means it has to be just internal to you. And once you bring in a third party, you've waived your privacy right. Doctrine sometimes says that. Now, when it comes to an attorney, an attorney-client privilege, yes, it is true that if you talk with your attorney in the presence of someone else who's not working for the attorney and not somehow very closely connected to you, another defendant or something, yes, your privilege might be waived if you start just talking with your attorney on the subway in front of everyone else. okay? Don't do that. I' um, expect to have the privilege. But when you say privacy is lost is waived when you bring in a sec- you know someone else, really? Because a lot of what we think about as privacy is not just you yourself and, and I, me, myself and I. Privacy is meaningful, often because it's shared. With someone whom you bring into your circle, a loved one, your spouse, for example, your life partner. A lot of what we talk about privacy, we talk about sexual intimacy and, and familial inti- intimacy a various sorts. That's not just one person in, you know, masturbatory isolation. I know there's a Woody Allen joke that you know about all of that, but no, privacy is often involving you know, someone else whom you trust. And if they voluntarily rat you out, oh, well, you assume the risk when you actually shared something with them, you know, shared something of yourself. But if they're being forced by the government to hand over some information, I'm not sure that that's simply a situation where the Fourth Amendment shouldn't apply, but doctrine sometimes does that it overregulates some things and because of that then it under other things and creates possibilities for loopholes and workarounds and government evasions yeah and when we when we talked about
0: uh, some of the origins of some of these things you talked about um the origin of of certain privacy protections kind of an originalist look at it where it relies on whether you're using your will you know or something like that so for example you know, if you, if you, the government wants to inspect your phone and you have, let's say things are protected by uh, your fingerprint or your fa- facial identification, that they can say to you, touch this or look at this. But if it's protected only by a and, and hang
1: on, and just on that, for example, sometimes they use the dead body test, like fingerprints also. We could get fingerprints off of a corpse. We could have taken your hand, you know, even if you were dead, and pushed your finger against that recognition technology or something. Whereas you can't get a voice exemplar from a dead person. And that's connected to the the, the will test. So we could have taken blood from a corpse, but you can't force a corpse to actually speak one's name or give a handwriting exemplar. That requires the will. And if you try to mask your voice, oh, well, that's very suspicious. Or you try to act, give a handwriting exemplar that really is not really your handwriting, oh, that's very suspicious. So sometimes, you know, way back in the 19-teens and 20s, they used actually a corpse test for determining whether the government was actually trying to use your will, your mind, Uh, against you in ways that implicated fifth amendment self-incrimination concerns
0: but of course does that actually make any sense i mean you know i i understand it but what what fundamental you know purpose is that serving well if you protect your phone with a password then we're not going to make you give us the password if you protect your phone with your fingerprint, then you have to give it to us what actual government interest or you know does that or personal interest is that actually serving it seems just just a, you know, an old principle has been made outmoded by technological developments in this way. It seems. Well, pretty. if
1: you think the fifth amendment has something to do with the government, not using your brain, your, your soul, your ideation against you, you could say there really is a difference between using your mind against yourself and using a body part against yourself. But anyway, Courts, there's a a very robust literature about all this, and case law about all this, especially at the beginning of the 20th century. Today, in court, they can force me to give a fingerprint, but they can also force me to give a voice exemplar. They can force me to give a handwriting exemplar in today's doctrine. So,
0: okay, so back to Idaho now. Um, So we've talked a little bit about the Fourth Amendment. Now we've just talked a little bit about the Fifth Amendment. But here's, I'm going to read you a a statement that I saw in a newspaper coverage of this. Um, uh, And uh, I think it has some implications for some, possibly some Sixth Amendment questions. So, Monroe County Chief Public Defender Jason Labar told local station WFMZ After Koberger was arrested last month at his parents' home in Albrightsville, Pennsylvania, the pair spent four hours. Over the course of five days, as he helped the alleged killer navigate the extradition process, Labar said. The first thing I said to him was, quote, Brian, don't tell me anything about the case. I don't want to know any of the facts and circumstances, unquote, said Labar, who is no longer involved in the case. Now that Koberger is back in another county facing his charges of first-degree murder and burglary. Okay. So, some uh, issues there.
1: So, lawyers are um, have two roles, and they are intention. Lawyers are zealous advocates for their clients, and that's one role. They're also officers in the court, the duties to truth and judicial system. So, here's, here's some things that lawyers cannot do. They cannot make knowingly false representations to the court. They can't actually tell you as a client and coach on how to commit perjury. And the court has been very emphatic about that. Uh, There's a case called Nix versus Whiteside that says not only is it a violation of because the Sixth Amendment talks about the right of counsel, but it's a right of counsel within a certain system and not only can a lawyer not knowingly coach you on how to for example commit perjury the lawyer can't help you bribe the jury or bribe a witness even if it's going to succeed even if it's going to you're going to be able to get away with it can't do that next versus whiteside goes so far as to say if you put your client on the stand and they start lying on the stand even if you didn't know they were going to do that but once they do that you can't you can't help them you actually in effect have to stop asking questions, and the judge might understand what you're doing. The jury might not. You have certain duties as an officer of the court not to facilitate perjury. That's what the court, it's a burger court opinion called Nix versus Whiteside holds. Here's the basic holding of Nix. In short, at times a lawyer cannot ask questions and let the jury decide, even if this strategy maximizes uh, the lawyer's client for victory. Here's the quote from the burger court plainly plainly counsel's duty of loyalty to the client is limited to a legitimate lawful conduct compatible with the very nature of a trial as a search for truth so i say well that's very interesting now let's go back to this situation so if it's going to constrain my ability as your criminal defense lawyer, if I know certain things, then I can't put you on the stand. So then I play a see-no-evil game. Don't tell me anything, because then I can put you on the stand. In the famous Jimmy Stewart movie, I think it's Otto Preminger-directed, Anatomy of a Murder, Jimmy Stewart has a client, and, and the question is whether Jimmy Stewart actually is crossing the line by coaching the witness. Jimmy Stewart, in effect, says... Before you tell me what happened, let me tell you a little bit about the law. If it happened this way, oh, I can defend you, but um, you have a, a good legal defense. But if it happened that way, oh, you're dead to rights. Okay, I want you just to go home and think about this. Come back tomorrow and tell me what really happened. <laughs> you know, after I've told you, oh, if it happened this way, you know, you can maybe get, I can maybe get you off. But if it happened that way, I can't. And there are folks who say, oh. The Jumi Stewart character in that movie crossed the line. Here's a meditation that I offered in an article called Sixth Amendment First Principles that is in my book, The Constitution and Criminal Procedure. I'm going to read, Andy, about a couple pages. And the reason that I thought you in particular might be interested in these two pages. Is It involves eyes, and eyewitness testimony, and faulty eyes, and, and, um, and this is, of course, your, your area of expertise. Okay, so here's what I say. The logic of Nix versus Whiteside raises unsettling questions about extremely vigorous cross-examination of truthful witnesses a tactic that most American defense attorneys today view as obviously appropriate and perhaps required by legal ethics. Consider, and this is my first case, a bank robbery case, which the accused tells his lawyer that he in fact committed the crime and the security guard saw him. So, you know, here's a situation where the lawyer somehow allows the client to tell him what really happened. And the guy says, yep, I did it. And the security guard saw me. If the guard... Takes the stand as a prosecution witness. How vigorously may defense counsel cross-examine her? Does the Sixth Amendment oblige, permit, or prohibit questions on cross-examination to show that the guard's eyesight not, is not great? She had only a few seconds to observe the robber, and that she failed to immediately pick out the defendant in the lineup. A critic of this cross-examination might view it as the moral equivalent of fraud. Isn't counsel implicitly suggesting through his questions that the security guard is mistaken, a fact counsel knows is false? Counsel, however, has a strong response, and here's what a defense counsel, I think, would say, something like this. My questions do not necessarily imply that my client is, in fact, innocent, but only that the government has failed to prove its case beyond a reasonable doubt. The guard's eyesight and shaky identification do raise reasonable doubt. And so the implicit theory of, of my case, underlying my admittedly vigorous questions of the security guard, is utterly truthful. Even if my client is in fact guilty, the government's proof is still weak, and this weakness should be emphasized to the jury and the public in keeping with the true spirit of the Sixth Amendment's innocence protection. So that's what counsel would say. Here's what I say in response. Counsel's line here is a fine one between asking questions that imply factual innocence and merely asking questions that imply reasonable doubt. But in principle, this is a workable one. And now I say, now let me give you another situation. And you might at first think this is exactly the same, but I'm going to suggest, oh, there's some differences. It's a date rape case. Not stranger rape, it's date rape. They know each other. And the defendant, once again, tells the lawyer that he did it. May the lawyer try to demolish the victim when she takes the witness stand, impugning her motives, questioning her honesty, bringing up her past sexual history. In at least four ways, this case seems different, and the vigorous cross-examination at issue here may actually tend to undermine the spirit of Sixth Amendment right of counsel. Okay, so you're going to say, how's that different than the security guard? Here are my... Really fine legal distinctions, and Andy will see if you buy any of them. And our audience, of course, will judge for themselves. First, counsel by his questions is implicitly saying that the witness is not merely possibly mistaken, as in the security guard, but is in fact a liar, indeed a perjurer. In ordinary morality, there's a big difference between asking someone, like the security guard, are you sure, and calling her a liar. In any other context, this knowingly false public accusation of dishonesty would be legally actionable. It would be a a sort of slander. But when this reputational mugging occurs in a courtroom, it's immune from defamation laws. Counsel can thus get away with it in some sense, but the Sixth Amendment is built on a very different worldview, not just about what you can get away with, but what's the right thing to do. Okay? Well, it
0: seems to me in response to that, that, uh, uh, and then I'll give you some, some more
1: distinctions, but that, that 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 that's the first one.
0: I mean, it might be that the that the defense attorney knows that, that the witness is telling the truth in this case because the client his client told him so. But um, the jury has to make a decision on how trustworthy the witness is in general. Um, so, yes. Um, so that that's a question of character um, and truth telling. Propensity in general. So, if the if if there were uh, you know ten different lies that th- that the uh, defense attorney knew this person had told in various situations and brought them up, that would that would bring into question whether or not she was in general a
1: truth teller. Right. So that's why in my hypothetical, it's an utterly truthful witness in every way. So let me give you a, a second distinction, Andy, just on this second savaging a truthful witness's honor and character powerfully discourages truthful witnesses from coming forward in pre- a precise violation of the spirit of the public trial clause the public trial clause is like if anyone has evidence come forward you know oh i saw this you know um i saw someone else that day or oh you know i'm now realizing he was with me that day or something outright extortion bribery or physical intimidation of a would-be witness is clearly illegitimate but is a brutal verbal assault carried out in a public courtroom and built on lies really so different and let's not forget this cruel verbal assault takes aim at a woman who's already suffered a savage physical assault from the lawyer's client is unlike let's say just a security guard third and this really, Andy, is closely connected to what you were asking. In trying to paint the rape victim as a, lawyer, a liar, a lawyer, lawyer must lawyer typically... A lawyer will do. <laughs> third, in trying to paint the rape victim as a liar, a lawyer typically must play act and posture in ways that implicitly argue to the jury and the public, not merely that the reasonable doubt about guilt exists, but the accused is in fact not guilty. And the implicit representation is a knowing falsehood, a lie. Fourth, and related, the emphasis on reasonable doubt in the bank robbery case closely tracks the core purpose of counsel in the Sixth Amendment, based on lawyers' special familiarity with legal rules, like the rule about reasonable doubt. Anyone can insult, bully, play, act, posture, and mislead. That's not why the Fifth, Sixth Amendment calls for lawyers. Rather, lawyers contribute something special to the trial precisely because they understand the importance of procedural rules like proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, here's the final thought. It's no answer to all this to simply point to and hide behind the adversary system as a justification for trying to demolish a rape victim on the witness stand. The entire premise of the Sixth Amendment and the Confrontation Clause in particular was to try to um, maximize the likelihood of that truth would out in a vigorous exchange. But the question now at hand is precisely what the ground rules of that exchange should be, so as to vindicate the premise and maximize the possibility that truth would indeed out. If perjury is beyond the pale, even when one could get away with it within an adversary system, perhaps certain forms of cross-examination and other lawyers' tactics should themselves be cross-examined. And because any ethical restriction on misleading cross-examination would constrain prosecutors as well as defense counsel, such restrictions in the long run may prove a net plus to innocent defendants. So I'm imagining changing the rules of engagement a little bit. When you know you're dealing with a truthful witness who happens to be a victim and the only way you're going to demolish her is actually... By, with your tone and affect and all the rest, calling her a liar, which you know is not true. uh, Whereas the security guard, you're not calling him a liar. You're just saying, isn't it true that you haven't been to your ophthalmologist in five years? And isn't it true you've got, you know, severe stigmatism and myopia that's that's uncorrected? And isn't it true that it was dark and it was, you know, 30 feet away and, and, and you only had three seconds and blah, blah, and, and you didn't pick the person out of lineup? Those were all true things, right? Well, a couple of
0: things. First of all, the fact that he hasn't been to his ophthalmologist in five years is grounds for the witness being convicted. <laughs> no, but, no, but um, seriously, though, yes, of course, uh, it, you can impugn him, of course. But going, but in terms of the the other case, um, yeah, I
1: understand so what you're, you're saying. You're not calling the security guard a liar. You're just right. saying I you know you don't have great eyesight. And but, here, you're calling the rape victim a liar and you know that she's not because your client has told you it's true. Right. But part of the problem
0: with that is the spectacle of the woman being called a liar in public and this, you know, and she's taking the stand bravely. And, and if, if the, um, if the client hadn't told the lawyer that the cross examine, the cross examination might be exactly the same. Is what yes. you just and, and portrayed. that's why and the that lawyer saying. Hold on, and that, yes, I understand, but the don't specta- tell me. No, but the point is that you you're not preventing the spectacle. So the degree to which we don't want that spectacle is not being achieved by just saying, "Okay, don't tell the lawyer." Okay, so the bottom line, so that is not really a societal purpose that's being furthered by that. The only thing that you're getting here is you're not enlisting the lawyer in this in the deception. Um, that's really all you're getting because the instead what you're doing is you're saying okay let's keep lawyers in the dark that's going to be better how is that really better i mean this is a cert, you know so so it's it's not well better.
1: let's let let, let let let's take that body chopping case now if the defendant doesn't tell the lawyer anything the lawyer can say before you tell me anything let me just say Let's imagine a certain scenario. If the scenario is she just you know died because she drank too much on, on and but you thought that you were going to get blamed for drugging her or what have you, and in a panic you know you chopped her up and got and 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 disposed of the thing. That's a crime, but that's a less serious crime than if you actually killed her with malice aforethought, and then you chopped her up and did all these things. Be, so before you tell me what happened, you know, let me tell you. If it went down this way, I can get you off with 10 years. If it went down this other way, you're going to spend the rest of your life behind bars. So before you tell me what happened, you know, let me tell you about the law. Now, that's that's anatomy of a murder, you see. And even if we can't prevent lawyers from doing this as a practical matter, we can actually talk about whether this is good legal practice or bad legal practice. Is this on the side of proper, zealous advocacy? Or is this a violation of the idea of being an officer of the court and a true seeker? Alan Dershowitz, and we've had him on the show, believes the following. If the law permits a criminal defense attorney to do a certain thing to help his client, the lawyer is almost obliged to do it. Allen however believes that the the rules can be changed so that lawyers can be told you can't do this. Maybe we can't enforce that as a practical matter, but a person would be a bad lawyer, unethical if they actually violated a, a rule that says you can't coach the witness in certain ways. Even if we can't as a practical matter enforce that against a lawyer who wants to who's trying to 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 get away with stuff and will be able to get away with stuff.
0: Well, you say we can lay out certain rules to that effect. So I guess the question then would become, well, maybe you can, maybe you can't. Which of them are actually guaranteed by the Constitution and which of them can are just a matter of, well, this is due process, this, is, this would also be due process, you know, if you did it this way, if you did it that way.
1: And, and my claim is the word counsel in the Sixth Amendment will always have a tension between it. Uh, within it, between officer of the court, truth-seeking, and zealous advocate. And exactly where we draw that line has a certain uh, flexibility in it. And and if Nix versus Whiteside says it's improper for the lawyer merely to ask questions of a client on the stand if the lawyer knows the client is committing perjury, gee, the logic of Nix versus Whiteside suggests we could regulate lawyers um, more broadly than that
0: there's also a tension between the lawyer wanting to get their get a reputation of being an effective defense attorney and getting people off.
1: Yes, um, and and maybe be, yeah. you know getting pa- be, be, uh, getting paid more and yeah. the 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 joke is reasonable doubt for a reasonable price. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes. Okay, so we're going to switch uh, the, so I I think that uh, one good thing here is that we're not saying okay, this is the way it absolutely has to be, but rather you know, here are some of the issues that are raised. So here's attention. Right. Okay, so one of the things that we've been doing over time is is asking you, our, our audience, for questions, and you have responded uh, in abundance, leaving questions on the website com slash podcast 2 That's the website where the where we host the. Well, we don't host it there, but we dispo- we display all the episodes there and all of our show notes et cetera and we leave a place there for you to to leave questions so we've received hundreds of questions and uh we've answered some of them over, over time now we're going to take a few more so this is by no means all the questions and nor is it by um, by any means all of the good questions but uh, just a few that we that we picked for today we thought you might be interested in hearing question answer okay so here's two related questions so let me ask both of them before you answer them. First, from uh, our listener B.G., um, is what books and resources would you recommend for trial judges to help them do their job better, better in quotes? Assume the trial judge sits, sits on a bench that covers all sorts of cases, criminal, civil, family law, etc. So that's that's one. And then a related question from Alec Rogers, is professor what are some of the some books about the constitution and american constitutional history that you would recommend besides your own of course I've read most of yours and much of gordon wood's writing but i'd be interested to know what other con law professors books you'd recommend as well
1: So for the first question from bg probably your best answer would be to ask other trial judges what they found most helpful. Because I've never been a trial judge, so I don't quite know what's most helpful to a trial judge. I know from conversations with some judges that they really find judicial biography fascinating. Presumably, if you're a trial judge, you might find the biography of a trial judge particularly useful and interesting. Most biographies are of Supreme Court justices um, or appellate judges. The great learned hand uh, was a trial judge and then later an appellate judge. There's a very long biography by a very thoughtful, well-respected scholar, now deceased, the great Gerald Gunther. It's a biography of learned hand. I've been told it's a great biography. I I haven't read it, I confess. Our audience will know that the judge whom I hold in highest regard as a scholar of a certain sort of the last century, is the great Henry Friendly. He was an appellate judge, not a trial judge, but he did publish collections of some of his articles, and some of the articles discuss the art of judging in various ways. He wrote a collection. One of his collections of articles is called Benchmarks, a kind of pun intended. Anything by Henry Friendly, for whom John Roberts clerked, for whom Merrick Garland clerked, many other, for whom Philip Bobbitt clerked. Enough said about the great Henry Friendly. So those are two possibilities for BG, my friend, the judge. But truthfully, you're going to get better suggestions, perhaps from fellow judges.
0: Now, you've talked about how how you some of your books you write for judges, but it's more for appellate judges, right? It right. is, for who
1: are basically, in effect, deciding legal questions, and, and trial judges are involved. They have a lot of stuff to do, jury selection, discovery, settlement, fact-finding, docket management. They're doing all sorts of things that I haven't written about in great detail, truthfully.
0: But, but just to, before we go on to the other one, just in terms of constitutional law, what does a trial judge need to know about constitutional law? Where, where can, every, where can they read cit- what they what they need to know for that?
1: What every citizen needs to know. And now I'm segueing into the other question. You know, what should you read for constitutional literacy? And thanks for, for saying, you know, apart from your own books, because I do believe in, in those. If I were picking three things other than stuff that I've written... Top a list for any judge, for any earnest citizen who wants constitutional literacy would be the Federalist Papers. There are a series of op-eds about 85 in all, anonymously published by Publius, who we now know today to be the, the joint product, product of uh, Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, and John Jay. And you don't have to read them in a gulp. They were published at the clip of two or three essays a week, these newspaper op-eds that were then later pooped together, bound together into book form. 200 years later, they still stand up, and they tell you a lot about the Constitution from start to finish. They kind of work through the written Constitution in textual order, the same way I try to do in America's Constitutional Biography. So Federalist Papers are epic. I read them. I think for the first time, uh, my first uh, summer of law school. At had a clip of about two or three a day. It took me about a month to read, therefore, and, and that was a good way to experience them.
0: Is there an annotated version of the Federalist Papers?
1: Oh, many different, versions, mm-hmm. many different versions. Many different annotated versions. Good thing is um, we
0: don't have to specify the translation.
1: <laughs> um, and, well, the English language has changed a little bit over time. A second book that... I've recommended before on this podcast is the best-selling book in constitutional law when I was a law student, when I was just uh, coming up, by the great John Hart Ely. It's a short book. It's called Democracy and Distrust, A Theory of Judicial Review. And it's a little outdated today in certain respects, but I think it, it still is a compelling read, and he's a very accessible writer, the late, great John Hart Ely The book to repeat, Democracy and Distrust, A Theory of Judicial Review. And again, our podcast audience has heard other stories about John Ely, who taught at Yale and at Harvard and Stanford. He was actually dean of the Stanford Law School. He was a public defender early on, a great scholar, very close friend of Alan Dershowitz's, a crusading liberal, pro-choice, emphatically pro-choice. But a critic of Roe versus Wade because he didn't think Roe played by the rules of constitutional law. So, Fabulous Papers from the founding, John Hart Ely from uh, my misspent youth, my boyhood, maybe the dominant scholarly contribution to American constitutionalism. Pick a book. I'm actually a, very, a friend of the author's. He and I disagree very much about the founding. I write a book that. Pretty much says the Constitution is quite democratic and legal. He writes a book that suggests otherwise in a neo-Beardian tradition. His name is Michael Klarman. The book in the neo-Beardian tradition is entitled The Framers' Coup. You could read that. That's not the book I'm going to recommend. I think actually he gets lots of small facts right in The Framers' Coup. But the biggest, the big picture kind of wrong. And it's kind of a dense book. I would recommend instead, because I think Michael Klarman is an amazing fellow and I really admire him and respect him. A book that he wrote on race in America, a hundred year story of changing understandings of uh, the rights, especially of African Americans called from Jim Crow to civil rights, taking you basically all the way from the era of Plessy versus Ferguson, all the way through Brown versus Board of of Education, a really great book. Michael Klarman, it won, I think, the Bancroft Prize for history. I'm one of the blurbers of the book, and it's a long book. It's a detailed book, tons of facts, but an epic achievement. So those are three. I could have picked lots of others. I think give you just a smattering there.
0: So I've read uh, the Michael Klarman book, and I can tell you that it, it's got a lot in it. And if you read it, you will be reading it for the next 18 months. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's very lengthy. So I'm going to give my own recommendations here for those but, who care. Um, I recommend a book that we've mentioned on this uh, podcast before, uh, Scorpions uh, by Noah Feldman. Very interesting. Very book.
1: gracefully written. A really interesting a biography is one thing. Robert Cairo, joint biography of two people. Okay. But Feldman pulls off and I think pretty successfully a biography of four figures at which and they're judges. Cause the earlier person was asking about judges, but four interesting judges were justices on the court at the same time who end up, they're all put on the court by Franklin Roosevelt, but they end up having different judicial philosophies. And Andy, you're going to tell them who the four are.
0: Well, there's um, Felix Frankfurter.
1: Mm -hmm. And we've had Brad Snyder on the program. There's uh, William O. Douglas. Mm -hmm. Who was Sterling Professor of Constitutional Law at Yale and a wild man. Of course, the great Hugo Black. And we've had lots of episodes about the great Hugo Black. And Robert Jackson. A fascinating character, prosecutor at Nuremberg, and while he was a Supreme Court Justice, he took, you know, leave of absence to be a prosecutor, which is a little edgy and weird, and who was, and whose second in command at Nuremberg was none other than the great Telford Taylor, one of my heroes, so it's a small world, so... Felix Frankfurter and Brad Snyder and William O. Douglas and, and yours truly and Hugo Black and our episodes on Hugo Black and Robert Jackson and his connection to Telfer Taylor. It's, it's a very nicely told story, beautifully writ. I think, and I, I agree with you. That's a fun read. Okay. Um, on that, if you're mm-hmm. interested, I think even maybe better uh, in certain respects, although more narrow, is a great book by James Simon, on two of those four, it's called The Antagonists. And it's a great joint biography, judicial biography of Hugo Black and Felix Frankfurter.
0: Okay, so here's, thank you for that. So here's another question. This is from Leo Zaporin. And the question is, how does the National Popular Vote Compact square with state constitution's guarantees to honor the popular vote in their state for presidential electors?
1: brilliant question and it might not if you're with me on Moore versus harper you uh, acknowledge that a state would have to decide whether the legislature is authorized to award electors to the people who win the national popular vote rather than popular vote within that given state and it will all depend on what the state constitution says as construed by the state supreme court so wow that's a great question so impressive Thank just,
0: you. just to back up for one second, for those that haven't, uh, that don't know who what the National Popular Vote Compact is, um, this is a uh, uh, sort of a way to get around the Electoral College without a constitutional amendment that Akeel was one of the inventors of some, I guess, twenty years ago or more now, perhaps.
1: Right. And, and, and from a strict point of view, it doesn't get around the Electoral College. It uses the existing Electoral College, but it tells the electors, don't pay attention to who won your state in the popular vote. Pay attention to who won the national popular vote.
0: Right. So when enough states, 270 electoral votes worth of states, agree that their electors will all go to the winner of the national popular vote then the that's what will determine the winner, if they all and Yeah, that win. becomes the game. Right. But
1: the questioner said, what if a state constitution doesn't allow that? And I think the answer is if a state constitution doesn't allow that, a state legislature is a creature of the state constitution and would have to follow the state constitution, say it with me, as construed by the state Supreme Court. So great question. Thank you for that.
0: So the next question is actually my favorite question, probably my favorite question that has ever been asked here.
1: When will Akil get a haircut? No. <laughs> okay.
0: This is from Rob Guillaume. And he asks, Is Professor Amar planning to teach another Ever Scholar event? So And the answer
1: is if Dr. Lipka lets him.
0: Yes. And of course the answer is 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 yes. Um, and we're we're hoping to uh, offer a course with Professor Marr and Gordon Wood, who's taught with us before and has expressed interest in doing so um, so that'll be was spectacular last time it would be spectacular again and we'll let you know about that um, now i I didn't plant this question although I did select it but let me just use this as a an, uh, an opportunity to make a little announcement to our our listeners. Uh, I know a bunch of you have written to to us about scholar, and you have questions about upcoming courses. I had mentioned in a recent episode that we're going to be announcing two courses, and in fact, over the last few days we've done that, we announced a course that's going to take place in New York, April 20th to 23rd, called Statesmanship and its Practitioners. That's going to be taught by the great Stephen Smith, whom we've mentioned many times on this podcast, along with Professor Daniel Schillinger, who's an expert on uh, Thucydides, uh, as well as uh, some others. He's going to talk about Tocqueville and um, also uh, Frederick Douglass. And, and then we have guest faculty. Vicki Sullivan from Tufts is going to teach on Machiavelli. And Stephen Skoranek, also from Yale, uh, who's an expert on the American presidency, is uh, going to talk about about that. Um, So let me just read you quickly from the description of this course. So who exactly is the so-called statesman? What does he or she do? And Is there not something antiquated or even anti-democratic about the language and practice of statesmanship? Herbert Storing, a great historian of the American founding, noted that the word statesmanship sounds almost un-American. And Harry Truman said that a statesman is just a politician who's been dead for 10 or 15 years. However, the contemporary global resurgence of authoritarians and demagogues, including Putin, Xi, Modi, Bolsonaro, and Trump, uh, justifies a return to this fundamental political problem. Against that dim background of political leadership at its worst, we may hope to illuminate its opposite. The statesman or the worthy political leader acting on a grand scale. So that's sort of the questions that will be addressed, and two, two ways to approach it. One, through theory, like I mentioned Thucydides, Machiavelli, Tocqueville, but also the practical end, practitioners of statesmanship, like Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, James Madison, and others, uh, are a lens through which this will be looked at. So you'll, you, on, you can go to everscholar.org, and just click around or go to everscholar.org slash statesmanship 2023 and read up on this. And um, this is going to be a very popular course because it it echoes courses that we've had in the in the past on things like grand strategies and world order and things like that, which have been among our most popular programs. So um, registration is going to open in a couple of days. So I encourage you to uh, take a look at this quickly um, before it's closed. So, thank and, you.
1: Andy, Andy, if I could just jump in briefly here. Please. We talked about your, your initials, uh, which are the same as Abraham Lincoln's. And you've given me such encouragement on the new book Companion, The Words That Made Us Equal, I'm spending a lot of time with Lincoln. And I just this week, spending a lot of time in the reaction to his death. And he wasn't dead 10 or 15 years before Harry Truman like people acknowledged that he was a statesman. Immediately in the moment, and and he—it's not just at his death; he's still in office. So it's not like the death of of George Washington years after he has has stepped down, or Lyndon Johnson's death again after he's out of office. He is in office and cut down, and everyone—not everyone, but but so many people—immediately understand his, not just his strength but his epic greatness and they are basically comparing him again and again and again to George Washington, Jesus Christ, and Moses okay and that's pretty you know and in American in America Washington you know ranks up with our with the, with the other two and and this is not one op-ed you know or or two columnists. it's everyone saying, oh my God, we had justice in, I mean we had greatness, um, uh, among us um in our midst. And what's so interesting is several months earlier, it wasn't at all clear that he was going to be reelected. He thought he was actually going to be tossed out on his um, ear as late as September 1st, 1864. And then this very famous telegram arrives from William Tecumseh Sherman. Atlanta is ours and fairly won and the war is going to be over. And people realize How wise Lincoln was to stay the course and how right they were to have picked him and stuck by him. And they reelected him by overwhelming margins, except for this one stupid northern state called New Jersey (laughs) that doesn't see the the, the light quite. But on statesmanship, it really is interesting that they see it for Lincoln in the moment immediately.
0: Yes, that great. And, of course, Stephen Smith is the editor of the volume The Writings of Abraham Lincoln and teaches a course at Yale on Lincoln. And I have learned from him on Lincoln, and, you know, you're in great hands. And then we're going to actually sort of set him off against Frederick Douglass, who's doing another form of statesmanship while not in office. Um, so very, very interesting. So here's a related question by the same Rob Gio. Uh, What do you think... Of Sidney Blumenthal's "The Political Life of Abraham Lincoln" series,
1: I've never met Sidney Blumenthal in the small world department. He's a close friend, I believe, of Philip Bobbitt, and and of course, our audience knows that Sir Philip Bobbitt is a very close friend of yours, truly, and of Andy's, and of this podcast. I haven't read the entirety of this multi-volume Blumenthal series, but I have read several chapters. I'm very impressed. Um, by Blumenthal is not a professional historian. He's not an academic, but man, he knows his Lincoln and he writes brilliantly. And he really, Blumenthal does, knows Washington and politics. And, and Lincoln is a Paul. Lincoln likes, you know, he's a Paul politician who likes politics and politicians. He's not ashamed of that. And Blumenthal kind of recognizes that Blumenthal has spent his life around politicians and, I think Blumenthal has written the, the stuff that I've read, just absolutely compelling stuff about Abraham Lincoln and his world and the other politicians all around him uh, that, he, that he overlaps with. So, again, I haven't read the whole thing, but I can recommend it on the strongly on the basis of, of what I have read. And Andy, maybe... We should try to get him on the podcast at some point. Maybe we can ask Philip if if he would ever come. So, Mr. Blumenthal, if you're out there, we haven't met, but I'm a fan.
0: Sounds good to me. So, last question for today. Um, This is from Harry Blaine, Professor Harry Blaine. He's identified himself here as Professor of Political Science at uh, Cal State Sacramento. Um, Dear Professor Amar, I'm curious about your view of Hugo Black's opinion in South Carolina versus Katzenbach, he provides a fierce originalist critique of Section Five of the Voting Rights Act. I agree with you that Section Five is constitutional, and that Shelby County versus Holder was—I think you use the word—I certainly would—disgraceful. Um, is there any merit to Black's critique of Section Five? Was he misapplying originalism? Or was his originalist analysis basically correct, but Section 5 should still have been upheld on more Frankfurter-like judicial restraint
1: grounds? He leans towards the latter assessment. So I'm not a fan of Frankfurter and just just deference in general. I am a fan of Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. I do think Justice Black erred in thinking that there was a problem with Section 5. Section 5 is about preclearance it's basically saying states that have a bad track record when it comes to voting rights have to if they're making a change to voting rights law have to get that change pre-cleared pre-approved by judges or the justice department before it can go into effect and here's why because if the law goes into effect and ends up disenfranchising all sorts of folks and it's eventually invalidated by a court. Well, you've already had the election under it and, and it's accomplished its nefarious purpose. And the problem with election laws, it's a little bit like whack-a-mole. A jurisdiction passes a, a disfranchising law and they hold an election under it, and, and eventually a court invalidates it, and so finally now they come up with a slight variant, and then that's going to take two years to litigate, and the court knocks that one down, and then they came up, come up with a third thing, and the judges playing this whack-a-mole game are always a couple of steps behind the the legislature, which time and time again is doing something that it really shouldn't be allowed to do. So the pre-clearance idea of The Voting Rights Act from Lyndon Johnson, again, 50 years ago to uh, this weekend that President Johnson passes away, his epic Voting Rights Act basically said if a state or a jurisdiction has a really bad track record of past violations of voting rights, Whenever it tries to, that jurisdiction, adopt a new voting rights rule that, that changes the rules of election, that new law, that new voting law can't go into effect until judges pre, uh, pre, pre-approve pre it or the Justice Department. And I think that's right and fair. Justice Black somehow thought that was a violation of federalism principles to prevent laws, especially laws of some jurisdictions, some states, from going into effect without applying it to universally. I wrote a piece in the Harvard Law Review online, and the title of the piece is The Lawfulness of Section 5, 5- and Thus of Section 5. Here's the first paragraph. Because you might think, huh? Did, you, did, did, did I hear that right? The Lawfulness of Section 5 and Thus of Section 5. Here's my first sentence.
0: Sounds recursive.
1: It does, so I love these recursive games. Well, here's the first two paragraphs, actually. Few law review articles try to make their central legal argument in their very title. Via title, words that do not merely describe the argument that will be made in the body of the article, but actually make the basic argument complete with legal reasoning, and thus. But this is such an article. To unpack briefly, this title's... And this article's argument is is as follows. Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act is an obviously appropriate and thus lawful congressional enactment pursuant to Section 5 of the 14th Amendment, which explicitly empowers Congress to, quote, enforce by appropriate legislation the provisions of this article, that is, the 14th Amendment itself. Those who oppose Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act claim that its regime of selective preclearance, whereby certain states with sorry electoral track records must get pre-approval from federal officials in order to do things that other states with cleaner electoral track records may do automatically, is not appropriate, not proper, not proportional. But if Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act is unconstitutional, why wasn't Section 5 of the 14th Amendment itself unconstitutional? For that section, and indeed every section of the 14th Amendment, was itself adopted by a process in which certain states were subject to a kind of selective preclearance. In the very process by which Section 5 and the rest of the 14th Amendment were adopted, certain states with sorry electoral track records, were obliged to get pre-approval from federal officials in order to do things that other states with cleaner electoral track records were allowed to do automatically. But it would be preposterous to say that Section 5 of the 14th Amendment was itself illegal. And what's true of Section 5 of the Amendment is true of Section 5 of the VRA, the Voting Rights Act. Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act is constitutional proper, appropriate, and proportional under the very same constitutional principles that legitimated Section 5 of the 14th Amendment itself. In short, any serious constitutional analysis of the special preclearance system of the Voting Rights Act must come to grips with the special preclearance system that generated the 14th Amendment itself in the 1860s. Between 1865 In 1868, states with abysmal track records of rights enforcement and democratically deficient voting rules were not allowed back into Congress to sit alongside states with minimally acceptable track records. And these same democratically deficient states were also not allowed to resume full powers of state governance enjoyed by their non-deficient sister states. Okay. Instead... States with sorry track records were required to submit new state constitutions for federal pre-approval slash pre-clearance and were also required to ratify the 14th Amendment itself. Other states, by contrast, were not subject to these special federal pre-clearance requirements, although many critics of Congress's actions in the 1860s loudly objected in the name of state rights and state equality to this highly visible and selective pre-clearance The Reconstruction Congress successfully defended its actions as a proper enforcement of the Article 4 Republican Government Clause, the very clause that today's states' rights critics of the Voting Rights Act have tried to invoke with unintended but astonishing irony against the Voting Rights Act. Whatever the clause may have meant to to the founding generation, a question that's generated a range of scholarly views, it's uncontested that the Republican Government Clause was the explicit and widely publicized legal basis for Reconstruction itself, and for the specific regime of selective preclearance that was undeniably part of the very process by which the 14th Amendment became part of the Constitution. Modern interpreters of the Republican Government Clause must thus take account of how this clause was powerfully and publicly glossed by the Reconstruction Amendments themselves, in particular, By the process by which these amendments, the 14th Amendment especially, sprang to life with the repeated and well-informed endorsement of the American people in a series of watershed elections that culminated in an emphatically reconstructed Constitution. So in effect, what I'm saying is, Hugo Black, I loved him, uh, but he made a mistake here. The 14th Amendment itself, the Reconstruction Amendment itself, said states that have actually violated certain rights are going to be treated differently. And if that was okay in Reconstruction, it should surely be okay in congressional statutes implementing Reconstruction. So it is recursive.
0: And I think we're going to have to talk about this again at some point, not so much in the Voting Rights Act context, but in talking about the 14th Amendment, because there are still people out there that, that need to hear uh, you know, and let's—I don't want to do it now because we're coming to the end. But uh, that uh, need to hear why why the process of, of ratification of the 14th <laughs> Amendment was kosher. Um, right. This is
1: this is one of the many little um, academic disputes I've managed to um, get, get into with interesting folks on the other side. Um, Bruce Ackerman, Richard Primus a long time ago, raised some questions about it. So definitely fodder for a future episode, Andy. But I think we've we've covered a lot of ground today.
0: Yes, you've got a real potpourri. So um, very, very good. So see you again next week. Thank you.
1: Great.